You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 244 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. We're back. We're back, and in our new place. Yesterday we recorded a members episode, so that was actually the first show we did here in our new place. And some of you may remember that when we started the podcast, oh so long ago now, We were recording in our kitchen, but we moved to the dining room table at our last place, and we're still recording at the dining room table here, our very fancy recording studio. We just set the laptop up on the table, and away we go. Anyway. Anyway, we wanted to say thanks for your patience as we took the last couple of weeks off from the podcast to get ready to move and then to actually move last weekend. And all the while in the backs of our minds, we knew all of you were waiting for us to come back and finish up the Battle of Stones River. Well, we've kept you waiting long enough, so let's get back to it. As you guys will recall, when we left off last time, the Confederate attack was continuing to roll forward, attempting to snap shut the jackknife that was the Federal line and trap the Yankees against Stones River. But Rosecrans, the Union Army commander, had used his brigade of regulars to buy the time he needed to stabilize his new line along the Nashville Pike. Rosecrans essentially traded the regulars' lives for the necessary time, and in 45 minutes of ferocious combat in the Cedars south of the Pike, the four United States infantry regiments suffered a casualty rate of almost 45%. But as we said last time, the regular sacrifice wasn't in vain, because they had bought enough time for Rosecrans to set his army in position along the Nashville Pike. The Army of the Cumberland now stood in line running half a mile from Stones River to the Pike and along the road for a mile and a half. Artillery along the rise between the railroad and the Pike commanded virtually the entire position. Union infantrymen were atop the knoll and along the railroad embankment, or took position in the sunken roadbed and used it as a natural trench. But behind the pike and railroad flowed Stones River, and that meant the jackknife was almost closed, and that meant there could be no more retreat for the Federals. And so as the last day of 1862 slipped from morning into afternoon, the Confederates, knowing they were close, 
so very close to victory, now sought to smash this final enemy position and win the battle. As the clock passed noon on December 31, 1862, the Confederate situation looked promising. Confederate Commander Braxton Bragg's plan for the battle had worked well enough so far, so that the Federals had been shoved back over three miles, and the attacking rebel troops now stood within a few hundred yards of cutting the Nashville Pike. McCown's and Claiborne's divisions continued to press ahead toward the Pike, while to their right, Polk's forces had dislodged almost all of the Federal troops in that sector from their original positions. But all was not well in the Army of Tennessee's ranks, and several factors now combined to blunt the Confederate momentum. The truth was, Bragg's attack was losing steam. On the rebel left, the units from Hardee's Corps spearheading the assault had been marching and fighting for six hours with scarcely a break. Among the post-battle reports from Hardee's commanders, words like jaded and tired can be found, describing the condition of the Confederate troops as they approached their goal, the Nashville Pike. Exhaustion was not the only thing taking a toll on the rebel infantrymen. They'd advanced so far that they'd left their artillery behind, and in many units the men's cartridge boxes were almost empty. In addition, the broken terrain had jumbled up their formations, causing units to intermix and slalom across the battlefield. Officer casualties further contributed to the loss of combat effectiveness in the units of both Hardee's and Polk's commands. Bragg could be proud of his army's accomplishments up to this point, but his attack was running out of steam. Hardee later speculated that, quote, if, at the moment when the enemy was driven from the cedars, a fresh division could have replaced Claiborne's troops and followed up the victory, the rout of Rosecrans' army would have been complete. Fresh Confederate troops were available in the form of Breckinridge's 6,000 men on the other side of Stones River. However, in contrast to Rosecrans' active, hands-on participation in the battle, Braxton Bragg passively remained in the rear and left tactical direction of the fighting to Polk and Hardee. And so it can be argued that once the battle started, Bragg's key task was to monitor the situation and decide the best use of Breckinridge's division. Bragg could hold Breckinridge's division in place, or he could send it across the river to reinforce Polk or Hardee, or... Bragg could use it to attack McFadden's Ford at the northern end of the Union line. Breckinridge himself had a responsibility to assess the situation on his sector of the field and give Bragg the necessary information to make the best choice. Ultimately, the failure to use Breckinridge's division to best advantage on December 31st would cost Bragg the battle. That morning, Breckinridge had some cavalry scouting to his front, and the Confederate horsemen detected the initial movement of Van Cleve's Federals across Stones River. However, as y'all recall, when Rosecrans realized his right was in serious trouble, he'd ordered Van Cleve's troops to pull back to the Federal side of the river. 
The rebel cavalry, though, missed this withdrawal, and so at shortly after 10 o'clock that morning, Breckinridge was erroneously reporting to Bragg that, quote, the enemy are undoubtedly advancing upon me. Bragg had ordered an advance toward McFadden's Ford, but Breckinridge's report caused him to quickly countermand that order, and instead he asked Breckinridge to send two brigades across Stones River to Hardee to keep up Hardee's momentum. Breckinridge, however, feared a federal attack on his front, on his side of the river, and so he didn't detach any troops to help the main battle at this time. Breckinridge was still seeing imaginary Federals on his side of the river shortly before one o'clock that afternoon, but he nevertheless finally relented and sent the requested brigades across the river. Bragg, however, judged the hour too late to get reinforcements over to Hardee, so he instead attached them to the closer Polk. Still later, Bragg directed Breckinridge to bring two more brigades across the river and join the main battle in Polk's sector. The what-ifs for Breckinridge's division on December 31st are tantalizingly tempting to speculate about. If the Confederate cavalry had scouted better, they would have detected the Federal withdrawal back across the river, and the rebel infantry could have moved earlier to reinforce Hardee or Polk. A bolder option would have been for Bragg to press the attack against the Yankees at McFadden's Ford, A vigorous Confederate push at that place would have created a serious dilemma for Rosecrans and would possibly have led to the total collapse of the Federal position. Even without actually defeating the Yankees at the Ford, a determined Confederate assault there would have forced Rosecrans to divert troops to his threatened left during the critical mid-morning hours, possibly fatally weakening the main federal line in the Cedars and along the Pike during that time. But we aren't talking about Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson here, and such boldness and uh, and audacity wasn't in Bragg's or Breckinridge's nature that last day of 1862, and so instead Breckinridge's men went into action late and against the wrong place. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, on the west side of the river, the Confederates came up against the Federals' final line. In the center, Alexander Stewart's command reached the northern edge of the Cedars after mauling the U.S. regulars there and forcing them to withdraw from the woods, as we talked about at the top of the episode. Federal artillery immediately opened up on the Confederate infantry. Stewart later recalled, quote, For some time we were exposed to a terrific fire of shell, canister, and spherical case. Having no battery of our own, and being nearly out of ammunition, it was impossible to proceed farther. An officer in the 19th Tennessee later said, quote, It is believed that if a battery could have been put into position, the enemy could have been shelled from their shelter in the roadbed and behind the railroad, and the day might thus have been more completely ours. Off to Stewart's left, McCown's tired division summoned one last effort to reach the Nashville Pike and snap shut the jackknife. Two Confederate brigades pressed ahead, but Rosecrans personally led the Pioneer Brigade against them, supported by elements of Rousseau's division. One of the Confederate Brigade commanders, Colonel R.W. Harper, later reported, quote, no time was now to be lost, as the enemy had evidently made their last standpoint and opened on us with artillery and musketry. Like Harper, Division Commander McCown realized it was now or never, and he launched the two brigades into a headlong charge toward the Federal line. The Confederate infantry pushed ahead into the storm of cannon fire and musketry, but after reaching a point within 50 yards of the pike, the enemy fire proved too much. Colonel Harper said, quote, After 10 or 12 minutes of the severest fighting it has ever been my lot to witness, we were compelled to fall back with very heavy loss. McCown's Confederates withdrew back to the Cedars and took up a defensive position in the woods. That meant that after being hit by the best that the tired Confederates could throw at it, the center of the Federal line had held. The next crisis developed on the Federal right as Patrick Claiborne's division of Confederates slashed northward toward the Nashville Pike. Half a mile from their objective, Claiborne's men ran into Van Cleese's division of Federals, plus Charles Harker's brigade of Wood's division. Harker later recalled, No sooner had I taken position than a most vigorous engagement commenced. St. John Little's Arkansans and Bushrod Johnson's Tennesseans faced Harker's Federals, while the rebels of Von, Von's Brigade and the rest of Claiborne's division engaged Van Cleve's Yankees. Both battle lines stood less than 100 yards apart and blazed away at each other as fast as the men could load and fire their muskets. After 20 minutes of this deadly combat, the Federals gave way. As his men and Bushrod Johnson's troops pressed ahead, St. John Little later remembered how, quote, The enemy fled, leaving a long line of dead and wounded on the ground. We moved forward together toward the cedars on the turnpike and railroad, with the enemy in full retreat before us. 
General Johnson and I congratulated each other on our success up to this time. But on the edge of victory, everything fell apart for the Confederates here. As Patrick Claiborne skirmishers reached the Nashville Pike, on the Federal side, Van Cleve and Harker rallied their commands and charged, led by the 13th Michigan, 13th Ohio, and 59th Ohio. Claiborne's exhausted rebels were surprised by this sudden Union thrust, and they faltered and then fell back. Other Confederate units, having reached the limits of their endurance, fell back also, even though they hadn't been directly hit by the Federal counterattack. Little remembered how, quote, Men were falling back to the rear, and my senior colonel thought it was a general understanding to do so. A frustrated Bushrod Johnson later recalled, quote, It was reported that our right was flanked by a heavy force. A hasty retreat immediately followed. The movement was, to me, totally unexpected, and I have yet to learn that there existed a cause commensurate with the demoralization that ensued. At the moment in which I felt the utmost confidence in the success of our arms, I was almost run over by our retreating troops. After the retreating rebel troops rallied a short distance to the rear, Corps Commander Hardy ordered a halt to the assault about 3 p.m. He later explained, quote, It would have been folly, not valor, to assail the enemy in this position. And so, after more than eight hours of marching and fighting, Claiborne's exhausted division of Confederates had been brought to a halt mere yards short of its objective, the Nashville Pike. And that meant that although it had been a near thing, the Federal right had held. With the Confederate efforts against the Union Center and right having spent themselves, the battle's focus now shifted to the Federal left, which was the only part of Rosecrans' line still in its original location. Anchoring the Yankees' position here was a four-acre circular cedar thicket known to both sides as the Round Forest. The wood itself was on a slight elevation, and the rebels would be forced to approach it across a flat stretch of open ground. A single structure, a small house near the forest, owned by the Cowan family, offered the only protection to the advancing Confederate troops. Although the rebel attacks elsewhere on the battlefield had failed, if the round forest fell, the entire Federal position would be flanked and unravel. This sector of the Union line was held by Palmer's division of three brigades, led by Cruft, Hazen, and Gross. Wood's division with Haskell's and Wagner's brigades, and other scratch elements of the Army of the Cumberland. Artillery bolstered the Union position, and Phil Sheridan's division, now restocked with ammunition, also received orders to assist in the defense of the Round Forest. That morning, Chalmers' Mississippi Brigade had tested the Union position here and been roughly handled by the Federal defenders. At noon, Daniel Donaldson's Tennesseans had launched an attack here, but the Cowan House broke the brigade formation, with the 16th Tennessee angling past the house to the right while the other rebel troops went to the left. Nevertheless, Donaldson's men, with assistance from Stewart's troops to their left, 
managed to dislodge most of Palmer's division of Federals, forcing back the brigades of Gross and Cruft to the Nashville Pike. But the Confederates, savaged by the Union cannon fire and musketry, were unable to secure their gains, and after more than an hour of this punishment, Donelson's Tennesseans fell back. Now, though, only the Federal brigades of Hazen, Wagner, and Haskell occupied the original Union position. Hazen's men held the round forest itself, with Wagner's troops posted to the left, supported by Haskell's command. During a short lull in the action, Rosecrans shifted Sheridan's men to assist Hazen, while Wood put Haskell's troops right up into the front line on either side of the round forest. While the Federals shuffled troops about to strengthen their position, on the Confederate side, the first two of Breckinridge's brigades, under Daniel Adams and John K. Jackson, crossed the river and reported to Corps Commander Polk at about 1.30. The bishop-turned-general decided to use them, as he later explained, quote, to drive the enemy's left, and especially to dislodge him from his position in the round forest. Unfortunately, the opportune moment for putting in these detachments had passed. End quote. Well, Polk must have made that admission with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, because at the time, even though the opportune moment had passed, he decided to go ahead and proceed with the plan. Bragg was observing all of this from the rear and could have countermanded these attack orders, but he took no action to stop it. Leonidas Polk compounded his error by committing the units piecemeal against the round forest. Instead of attacking with both brigades simultaneously or waiting for the rest of Breckinridge's force, which was due to arrive on the scene in an hour, Polk threw the men forward as quickly as they deployed. First in were the Louisianans and Alabamians of Adams's just-arrived brigade. As Adams' men advanced with flags flying, the Cowan House forced a shift to their right, which pushed their attack directly against Hazen's and Wagner's Yankees. The defenders greeted the Confederate attackers with a, quote, terrible fire, end quote, according to Adams. His men halted and exchanged volleys with the Federals. This lasted until a flanking Union force threatened to cut off the rebel brigade. Adams said, Finding that I was overpowered in numbers, I had reluctantly to give the order to fall back. The hard-pressed Confederates fled in disorder, having attempted what Adams said was, quote, more than any brigade could accomplish, and full work for a division well-directed. Adams himself fell wounded and commanded the brigade passed to Colonel Randall Gibson, as Adams' regiments fought on, the men of Jackson's just-arrived brigade advanced to the left of the Cowan House. As the rebels moved forward, a Federal soldier in Hazen's brigade said simply, A most destructive fire was opened upon them. The 73rd Illinois and 2nd Missouri of Sheridan's division came to help, losing Colonel Frederick Schaefer in the process. Schaefer was the third of Sheridan's brigade commanders to die that day. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side, Jackson struggled to push forward. He said, Twice I ordered a charge upon the enemy's strong position, 
but for want of support from others and the smallness of my own numbers, was forced to take the cover of a thick cedar wood. By three o'clock that winter's afternoon, both Confederate brigades had been bloodily repulsed and had fallen back, leaving one-third of their men as casualties on the field. The sad price paid for Polk's inept handling of this attack. After the repulse of Adams and Jackson's Confederates, Hazen later recalled that at the Round Forest, quote, a period of about one hour now ensued with but little infantry firing, but a murderous shower of shot and shell was rained from several directions upon this position, end quote. In fact, shell bursts in the tops of the cedars sprayed wooden splinters as deadly as shrapnel down upon the Federal soldiers defending the round forest. During this time, Rosecrans toured the line with Haskell, encouraging the men and directing the placement of reinforcements. Over on the Confederate side, Breckinridge arrived and reported to Polk with the brigades of William Preston and Murfreesboro resident and former mayor Joseph B. Palmer. Polk ordered them to form up for yet another attack against the Round Forest, and as soon as the troops were in position, he sent them forward against the Yankee defenders. Hazen later recalled the spectacle of Breckinridge's advance, saying, quote, At about 4 p.m., the enemy again advanced upon my front in two lines. The battle had hushed, and the dreadful splendor of this advance can only be conceived as all description must fall vastly short. The advance of Preston's and Palmer's brigades may have been grand, but that didn't stop Federal artillery and musket fire from tearing into the Confederate ranks, making a noise so intense that men from both sides picked cotton from the field to plug their ears against the enormous racket. Palmer later wrote, The several regiments of my brigade moved gallantly and steadily forward in this charge, although exposed to a terrible fire. The high command of the Army of the Cumberland, Rosecrans, George Thomas, McCook, Crittenden, and their staffs, watched this action from the vantage point of the knoll and were in full view of troops on both sides. Confederate shellfires soon began to fall amongst this conspicuous assembly of mounted men, and Thomas and McCook decided that, in this instance, Discretion was the better part of valor, and they found somewhere else to be. Rosecrans, though, seemed oblivious to the danger. Then, when he judged that Hazen might need help, he spurred his horse toward the round forest, with his staff following. Suddenly, a shell whistled past Rosecrans' head and decapitated his close friend and chief of staff, Lieutenant Colonel Julius Garrichet. In a gruesome display, Garrichet's headless body continued on horseback for another twenty or so feet before falling to the ground. Sheridan recalled that this horrible death, quote, stunned us all, and a momentary expression of horror spread over Rosecrans' face. But at such a time, the importance of self-control was vital, and he pursued his course with an appearance of indifference, end quote. The Confederate attack faltered about the same time that Rosecrans reached the Round Forest. 
Breckinridge's men fell back in confusion in the face of the intense federal defensive fire, and the onset of darkness on this New Year's Eve finally brought an end to the day's fighting. Like their comrades in the center and on the right of the Union line, the federal defenders of the round forest had held on and defeated the Confederate attacks thrown at them. And although the curtain came down on 1862, that night at midnight, the Battle of Stones River was not yet over, but would continue into 1863. And so will our story. That will have to wait for the next show, though. Since we didn't end up closing out Stones River before we moved, but are finishing things up here on this side of our move, we didn't think we needed to be in a big hurry now to wrap things up with this episode. So we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Stones River, including the charge of the Orphan Brigade, with next week's show. That means it's time for this week's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is History Lover's Cookbook, over 150 full-color photos inspired by 19th century recipes, anecdotes, and the Civil War by Roxanne Peacock. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 71, in which we took a quick look at what was on the breakfast, dinner, and supper tables of people back in Civil War-era America. And this book recommendation is following up on that show. There are other books out there on this topic, but as far as recipes and photos and fun anecdotes, we like this one. And the fact that the author grew up going to and participating in Civil War events and reenactments tipped us in her favor, too. So that's History Lover's Cookbook, over 150 full-color photos inspired by 19th century recipes, anecdotes, and the Civil War by Roxanne Peacock. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can start the process of enlisting in the Strawfoot Brigade to help support the podcast each month financially, which benefits us. And for you, you get access to all those members episodes that we've done, over 70 of them now. At any rate, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Robert, Eric, James, Tom, and Scott. Thanks, guys. And as we wrap up this show, we wanted to remind you that the lovely music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Stones River. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.